Well, you sent me packing down Green River Valley. I knew that if you couldn't, then no one would have lost myself drinking with those stray dogs. In hey there, this is Adam with Mile High Stash, the podcast that asks what five albums you would bring to a remote Colorado cabin in the event of a zombie apocalypse, armed only with food, water, and a crank-powered Victrola. Today is Indigenous People's Day in the U.S., and I'm going to take my kid to a couple events in the Boulder area. Um, Christopher Columbus was a murderer, a rapist, he contributed greatly to genocide and slavery, and um, I don't think we should be celebrating him. And it's great that we have this alternative thing to celebrate uh, today, indigenous people. And um, I am very <laughs> um, aggressive on my soapbox um, sometimes in life. And a lot of people who know me, <laughs> deal with that. And I will say that it's partly because of my outspoken anti-war draft-dodging grandfather, um, Orlando Vincenzo Perry. Um, but it's also because of our guest today, uh, Dick Lucas of The Subhumans, Citizen Fish, and Culture Shock. Um, the Subhumans were broken up when I discovered them um, in junior high, and still I worshipped them and and was really impressionable at that age. And um, I guess another way you could put it was open-minded, which is a good thing. And um, the lyrics to so many Subhumans songs molded uh, so much of my beliefs and personality when it comes to religion, politics, um, you know, social things, class things. And um, I think that was the case for a bunch of my friends growing up in Pittsburgh and falling in love with the subhumans, um, Steve-O and Mike P, if you're listening, and Rocco Coza, rest in peace. Um, I previously interviewed Dick in Scotland in 2019 under a bridge in Glasgow right before a Subhumans gig. Um, it was pretty much a childhood dream come true. And um, under a bridge in Glasgow was pretty much the perfect place to interview the leader of one of the greatest hardcore bands of all time. Um, here's the thing about the Subhumans. Uh, who play uh, in Denver Monday, November 9th. Um, between Bruce Treasure's amazing guitar playing and melodies and Dick's uh, passionate lyrics on issues of all kinds, the Subhumans have never been just another punk band. And the conversation with Dick that you're about to hear sheds light on what these guys were listening to in England, not only before the Subhumans were formed, but before punk rock was even a thing. The Subhumans, surprisingly, <laughs> were influenced by groups like, you know, Led Zeppelin and, and Black Sabbath and even Emerson Lake and Palmer. And uh, as Dick says here, the mothers of invention. Um, um, you know, the important thing to realize is that the Subhumans didn't just grow out of uh, some kind of punk rock slime in a, in a sewer one day and start playing parasites. But um, anyway, here's my conversation with Dick Lucas of the Subhumans and Citizen Fish after a few words from our a generous sponsor today, the Boulder Roots Music Project. I'll be playing drums with Rolling Harvest at the Boulder Roots Music Project on Friday, December 8th. And also, Rolling Harvest plays the historic Gold Hill Inn this Friday night, October 13th. Okay, see you on the other side of my chat with Dick Lucas of the Subhumans. Oh, 
The Boulder Roots Music Project believes in the power of music to make the world a better place, and all music starts locally. The Roots Music Project empowers artists and audiences to connect and create a thriving and inspiring local music scene. Based in Boulder, Colorado, the Roots Music Project's mission is to foster a DIY music scene with events such as concerts by local and national musicians, open mics, live interviews, and workshops. Head to rootsmusicproject.org for their event calendar and more information about this great Boulder nonprofit music incubator. So Dick Lucas of, you know, the subhumans and culture shock and citizen fish. Uh, thank you so much for hanging out. And um, you guys are playing in Denver at HQ. Yeah. Uh, the venue is likely to move to um, uh, a place beginning with O. The Oriental Theater? Yes. Oh, great. It. It's much bigger, actually. Yeah, probably too big. They might shrink it down a little bit. I mean, it is a Monday yeah. and we're not you two, so... Yeah, it, it's nice to make nice to play where the crowd either fits a big place or when there's a really big place, somehow you can make it feel more uh homely, one to one ish. Yeah. You know, it's uh very large places without being rammed always seem a bit weird, really, just too echo, too much space in the room, but yeah. still, that's me, that's me being fussy. It's just good. I'm gonna go, we're glad we're actually playing Denver. It's one of those places where there's always a good show. Mm-hmm. But it is so far in the middle, away from everything else. And if mm-hmm. you're not directly going from A to B and in a straight line going through Utah and onwards to Kansas or whatever, which used to happen way more than it does these days. These days, our tours have to basically be approximately two to three weeks long max due to mm-hmm. think people got family situations that they've got to get back to. So us doing tours that join the west and the east coast is more or less a thing of the past so what we're doing with jet with denver is we're going to do go up the west coast end up in seattle then fly to denver for the last show which just happens to be on a monday so just think of monday as the, the new saturday right and right come check it out <laughs> do you remember november the november the 6th i believe yeah do you remember your first time coming to the States and, and playing somewhere like Colorado, you know, that's idyllic and so different from where you're from? Yeah, Colorado with loads of rocks, trees, forests, rivers, streams, nature all over the place. And like gigantic versions of the nature we see back here. Uh, well impressed with Colorado. It's a lovely place. We don't go there half as much as we would like to. Mm. Last time we talked you were just about to put out crisis point and yeah. um, tell me about the punk machine and what you learned um, in your life and career that might've went into writing that song. Oddly enough, that song isn't based so much on life experiences all leading up to it, mm-hmm. but it was written to fit a play that a friend of ours wrote called oh. the punk machine. And in the play, um, the, the mad professor character invents this punk machine. And once he turns it on, the four members of this fairly crap band who want to play better all become great punk musicians all of a sudden. They can string a tune together and uh, they play a song called Punk Machine. Which, well, I wrote the song called Punk Machine. Uh, it's about that, basically. But behind that is the solid theory that uh, bands who expect to get to be making loads of money by signing contracts with large record labels um, in order to do so, are going to be very disappointed indeed. Um, Since the emergence of both the DIY punk scene and the internet over the decades, the the story of bands selling out by signing up to CBS or EMI or whatever Mm -hmm. are much less frequent and they just don't happen as much in the punk scene at the level it is at the moment. 
the large labels full of suits. Well, there's still large labels. There's large punk rock labels, but they're run by punks, mm. uh, who some of which have made a lot of money running large punk labels. And there's much of a, a blur on the fine line between corporate cop-out and sort of DIY cop-out. Yeah. You see what I mean? Um, punks get older. Some of them go into the business side of it and still put out punk records and the whole ethos is sort of merged together where the complaints about bands selling out are much less frequent. Yeah. Did well, you... it's a good or bad thing. I'm not going to judge on that. But yeah. uh, back in the day, as they say, I hate that phrase. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you know, bands have been be, seen to be selling out just by playing a show for three pounds instead of two pounds fifty. Um, the Subhumans play with the Dead Kennedys on a UK tour, and uh, we played on their London show. And MDC were going to support them on the whole tour. This is back in 1984, 1983, whatever. Um, and MDC pulled out the entire tour because their shows were three pounds to get in, which was approximately double the average cost of getting into a punk show, one pound fifty. And it all seems quite comical now, but at the time, it was that serious. You know, there were strict, unspoken laws, rules about how much you charge. Nobody wanted to be ripped off or feel they were being ripped off. And there was very much, nobody really had any money because we were all like young punks. We didn't have the jobs, so we didn't want in the first place. Mm -hmm. And if we got the jobs, we wouldn't have enough money to go to shows anyway. So, yeah, um, there was a lot of concern about uh, the ethics of being true to your roots. And that included not charging people too much to come and see you. It sounds like you already knew, you know, back when you guys started and you're actually reminding me of this line from a crass song where it talks about the clash and it says their revolution is just for cash but yeah um it sounds like you guys already knew when you started and you know you were doing the music that ended up on eplp you know did you already know that you didn't want to be like the sex pistols and the clash and if you started to be commercially successful you know maybe the message in your songs wouldn't have the same verisimilitude we never sat around and talked about this and the fact is well the fact is we didn't get approached to sign to any major labels or get offered contracts or loads of money so it never happened to us mm -hmm. so our stance was fairly easy to follow because we weren't right. under threat of being asked to sell ourselves out and if we'd been asked to I, the band conversations might be quite interesting to listen to right. um but as it happens, we were part of a scene, Crass and Flux Pink Indians, Crass Records, Spide Leg Records were run by Flux Pink Indians who were previously on Crass Records and uh, Subhumans were asked to be on Spide Leg Records and this paid no more than £2.50 or £3.25 for a record was all part of that culture. I really like that idea because the only records I could afford to buy were the cheaper ones. So if you made it deliberately cheap and set the standard, above which shops shouldn't go to. And if they did, then people could complain or just go to a different shop to get it at the suggested price. Then um, we we just thought, that's good, and I was getting ripped off. Because we were all punks, we bought records in stores, and you knew when you were being ripped off. So if you can do a little bit to help that situation, like not happen, to change that situation by putting mm. the price on the sleeve permanently, um, yeah, what was the question? <laughs> did you? Well, I think you answered, but I was saying, you know, did you learn from you know the Sex Pistols and the Clash? Like, hey, maybe. Oh yeah, yeah. The opening, yeah, the opening statement. Did we want to be like the Clash and Sex Pistols? Yeah, every everybody who formed the band <laughs> wanted to be the Clash, all the Pistols, all the yeah. Banshees, all the Buzzcocks. Of course, you do. In theory, you know, you just want to make good music, and you mm -hmm. like to appeal to as many people as possible. Um, and some bands got offered deals by corporate record companies and they took those deals and they went on top of the pops and they got famous and mm -hmm. they were all mostly disappeared within two or three years of that happening. One hit wonders and all that sort of thing. Um, the chance never came to us. I'm kind of glad it didn't. Otherwise mm -hmm. I don't think we'd still be going now. And so uh, the fact is I do sincerely believe that like 
money will destroy music if it's taken too seriously or put above the importance of the actual music. Music comes first. Any money attached to it is should be through work and a bit of luck and people liking you, not because some business suit has dumped it in your bank account. That's not earning it at all. That's just setting yourself up to be commercialized and made into a plastic version of your actual self. Yeah. Some bands, you know, when they're young and poor and sleeping on floors, they write the music that ends up attracting people and making them famous. And then they make a lot of money and try to write something that still has that energy. And it just doesn't. Yeah, true. But if bands can make a lot of money almost accidentally, just because they can sell a lot of records because their songs have a lot of resonance with people, Mm-hmm. then fair luck, fair, I mean, good luck to them. Um, if they then find, because they have moved out of the gutters, so to speak, because they've got loads of money and they find they can no longer write sincerely as if they were still in the gutter, which is kind of like what would happen, then that's just a change of circumstance. Mm-hmm. And they should start writing songs about what you can do with money if you've got a load of it, like help people out. Mm. or write about the injustices in the world that create the poverty and the homelessness and the frustration of people because of the power and the the attachment to money that we're told is so important from puberty onwards, save up, buy this, buy that, and you'll be happy, apparently. And it doesn't work out like that for most people. Believe, consume, and pay. Yeah, and then Um, then it'll be all right. (laughs) Yeah. How do you, the first thing that I noticed about Crisis Point is just the engineering is really good. It sounds really oh, good. Oh, thanks. And, and um, in, in some ways, that's almost you know surprising because I remember being 12 or 13 in Pittsburgh and, and uh, somebody had a, a copy of um, The Day the Country Died and they said, this band has this song called Mickey Mouse is Dead. And one of the things that is likable about it is is that it's really dirty and the mix is almost eccentric. And so how do you keep that vitality of the subhumans, but have really good equipment to record with, if if you know what I mean? Well, well, the thing is, I mean, comparing the, the the sound on the data country died to the sound on crisis point is uh not going to really form an answer in terms of how do we get that sound the right. data country died we were all early 20s and bruce our guitarist he did have a pretty good idea of how these things work mm-hmm. in terms of sound but he was the only one yeah. uh overall we had not much of a clue over what we were doing we had to leave it up to the engineer to to show us what he considered to be the best sound he could possibly get from the equipment that we had. By the time we get to crisis point, we're all grown up, so to speak. (laughs) And um, Bruce and Phil know a hell of a lot more about studio sounds. Mm -hmm. Phil used to have his own eight track studio up for a few couple of years. And Bruce teaches music. I mean, they know what they're doing. They know exactly what they want it to sound like. Mm -hmm. Um, me and Trotsky are still more or less in the shadows, ignorant shadows, and not really minded or caring what the phrase is that makes this sound good or that sound mm-hmm. bad. We know what we what we hear. We're hearing good or we're hearing could be better. But Bruce and Phil are absolutely like they're all about decibels and volumes, equations, and yeah. all those words I can't even remember. And the sound that comes out, it well, I don't know what where, where the sentence is going really. I'm yeah. glad you're, it's appreciated where it's. Yeah. Like, you know, 40-year-old music or three-year-old music that we're making. Um, it's, uh, it's down to the engineer knowing his gear, down to the engineer actually liking us to start with, which always helps. An engineer actually cares about what he's working with will make a very good job of it. The drums especially are mixed it, it, extremely well and tuned ex- extremely well. You know, it, it it's... Uh... It's a great sounding album. I mean, it's it's great that a band that's been together for so long can still get together and write these songs and, and make an album with, with that kind of power. Yeah, on the other hand, we've had 40 years at it. We should be good at it by yeah. now, right? <laughs> right. 
enough practice. <laughs> What's it like to be in a band with people you've known since you were teenagers, right? Um, yeah. Well, we all met up together in our yeah late teens, early twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, what's it like? It's the same as asking that question ten or twenty years ago. The same answer. It's it's good. I mean, it works. We know each other inside out. We're good friends. Um, we can have good chats, good laughs, or just sit in silence in the van, and it's all like everything's fine. Uh, we rarely argue. Uh, we have short debates about stuff that are quickly solved one way or the other. Um, what is it, what is it like considering the fact that we've been together for so long? Then that's mm-hmm. just a bit wow. That's like forty year, forty two years actually. Mm-hmm. It's like, gosh, isn't that a long time? And then it is, and it's like right. So I know it just it just is because we haven't stopped. We we like what we're doing. We can still make up a good tune with a few new lyrics now and again. Um, we haven't stagnated. And uh, we like what we're doing. And the crucial thing is people still keep turning up to watch us play. If they didn't show up, it'd become a bit silly, really. What's the secret to going into the studio and making something that sounds like, you know, the subhumans? Because you have these other bands too. And so when you do the subhumans, you're doing a subhumans sound. But what's the key to not going in and saying, I'm going to write another subhuman song that sounds like the subhuman songs that people know and love already? Well, firstly, there's whoever creates the actual tune, uh, which is either Phil or Bruce, uh, Mm -hmm. largely Bruce. It all totally depends on what's going through his head and what he's got into lately. Mm. And uh, Bruce can get quite experimental with like three, five beats and this sort of thing. Um, it can get a bit complicated. and Sometimes he needs to just take a step back and get more into the 4-4 four, four and thrash out a bit. So that's how our songs usually end up having little quirky bits, and weird mm-hmm. moments in some of them where things suddenly change into something you might not have expected to happen. So that's... That keeps the songs usually fairly different from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we never really set out to say, well, let's do another song that sounds like Southern City or right. whatever. Um, in terms of, I don't know if you're re- referencing this, in terms of sounding different from, say, Culture Shock or Citizen Fish, mm-hmm. that's mainly because uh, Bruce's guitar sound. Um, Bruce is a very, very good guitarist. He knows exactly what he's doing and he's got some really wacky ideas. And he's got a really good guitar sound. He works on it. Um, that's the main difference. Phil's a very good bassist, as opposed to being a very good guitarist in Citizen Fish. Mm-hmm. He can... Those fingers are amazing. Um, I don't really know the answer to these questions because I'm struggling to make one up as I go along. Right. Um, it's it's hard to describe the, the nature of making music. How does it work? Where does it come from? Mm-hmm. How come you still able to do this i mean i don't know luck of the draw um hard work and inspiration some bands and i'm thinking of the misfits here you know they they have a following and they have you know the famous records and then i mean it's different because they ended up with a whole new you know lead singer songwriter and everything but you know they definitely became caricatures and they go into the studio and say let's make a song that sounds like us, what, what people expect, you know? And so I was just well, wondering. For a, lot, for a lot of bands who do that, it mm-hmm. works for them. It worked for the Ramones until they yeah. started doing slow, slow down love ballads. And it's like, mm-hmm. what's that about? Don't, do not do this. Yeah. Go back, be the Ramones, do what you do. Uh, yeah, some bands make their own sound and anybody else who sounds like it, they are copying the originators. So yeah, certain bands are probably doing the right thing by just more or less repeating their formula mm-hmm. because it's an original formula and that's what they sound like. Everyone knows what they sound like. Everybody wants the next record to more or less sound like the last one because they love the last one so much. So maybe they're onto a good thing. Other bands can be so varied with their musical output, but that only works if they started out being so varied. On the mm-hmm. Like you bring out one record where song 
one sounds a bit like number four and number seven, but two, three, eight, and ten all sound completely different from five and six, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. If bands can mix it up from the beginning, so nobody really knows what they're going to sound like, every new record will be a surprise. I'm desperately trying to think of a band who is who works like that. And there is one amongst my five albums that we're yet to get around mm -hmm. to. Yeah. There is a band the like... The Cardiacs. Yeah. The Cardiacs. Mm. There is a band like Ween where... And Frank Zappa was the same way where not only from album to album <laughs> would they vary, but from song to song, it would sound like a different artist. Yeah, that's quite wacky because one of my five albums is The Mothers of Invention. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> we can get to that, actually. Let's just let's just do that now because I wanted to... Is that to, worth doing that? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I wanted to lead into this, you know five apocalypse albums thing by asking it's just, it's just it's just a regular thing you do yeah the name of the podcast is mile high stash and the, and you know and, and the question that we ask everybody is if you were stranded in a remote colorado cabin you know during a zombie apocalypse and the only things that you had were a crank powered victrola and food and water what five albums would you bring good move and, on that food and water thing yeah. Otherwise, everybody's just gonna start eating their albums. Yeah. Um, kind of think of it. It'd be good to have a couple of albums where that would like frighten off zombies. Yeah. Like so hardcore or so metal, or just hit the right note. There's probably one note that like melts zombie brains. Right. Just disintegrates their interior, the insides, or something. If it's loud enough, like those opera singers who can hit high notes to the point of frequency that will break a glass yeah i wanted to ask you you know what music did you grow up on um you know that that influenced you and is there anything that would surprise us i mean is like you know people who are longtime hardcore fans of the subhumans might be surprised to hear that you actually have spent money on david bowie lps or <laughs> listen uh, to yes before punk rock came along, the best of what I was listening to, I actually liked, were well, including David Bowie and the sort of Ziggy Stardust, mm. Punky Dory era, um, Black Sabbath, and oh, Amazon Lake and Parlor mm. had a couple of interesting songs. Well, tracks, they weren't really songs, but they were. But, um, and I quite liked a couple of ABBA hits. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Um, but seriously, the note musical structure of the chorus of uh SOS, da -da 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 -da. Put, put this in print, yeah, right, is <laughs> it's, it's astounding. That's yeah. was a, a great hit. <laughs> um, also pre punk, the one, the first, um, shall we say, surreal record that I'd ever heard was um, Mother Mania. The, the best of the mothers. Mr. America, walk on by your schools that do not teach. Mr. America, walk on by the minds that won't be reached. Mr. So this is your came first out choice. In 1966, mm -hmm. and uh, I got hold of this about 1972. 1975 or something like that when I was about 16 thereabouts and um it was being passed around at school nobody people were buying it from each other they didn't like it they passed it on by the time it got to me I paid 50 pence for it total bargain and it's Frank Zappa and his earliest band mothers and it's a compilation right it's a compilation sort of mm -hmm. the best of the mothers yeah it's like mm -hmm. the greatest hits at that time way before we did loads more stuff. Yeah. And uh, some of the songs are just incredible. Just crazy subjects, weird rhyming. The music will just stop and start mm. and carry on into mad jazz stuff and come back into like rock and roll, rockabilly, a bit of metal, a bit of a lead, quite a lot of lead breaks. But and there's one song, It Can't Happen Here, which is, mm. consists entirely of vocals. It can't happen here. I'm telling you, my dear, no, 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 it can't happen here. I've been checking it out. Yeah, obviously, seeing right. it won't 
type out that well, but uh, Brown Shoes Don't Make It is about a five or six minute song full of amazing lyrics and just silliness and daftness with a, a few like um, like song title, Who Were the Brain Police? Mm-hmm. Now, pre-punk, not many bands were singing about something as esoteric or socially uh, jarring as the idea of a brain police as well, sort of like 1984 or Aldous mm-hmm. Huxley or that sort of angle wasn't really in music. It was in books and plays, but not really on records. Um, Plastic People is another fa- fantastic title for a punk song. Yeah. Uh, one America drinks and goes home. Yeah, the idiot bastard's son has got the word bastard in it. That's a rarity, you know. So I was totally intrigued. I've loved it ever since. And I saw one of my never get rid of records. Actually, I've never got rid of any records, but. That's the copy that you've had since you were a kid? Yeah. That's I've never seen fantastic. another copy. I mean, there probably were more, obviously, but it was quite a long time ago by now. And I checked, I did check out other mothers, mother, mother's records, other mother's records. That's it. And it, I kind of think if it is the best song, because a, a lot of the other songs are they're kind of drawn out for like 10 or 12 minutes. There's way too much Libre for my taste, and they don't quite do the same thing. Um, but that is a very good example of pre punk punk rock. Now, when them zombies are coming towards my cabin, the only way to relax them is to put on some good dub music. And I would play North of the River Thames. I think, can you actually see any of this? It's just blue flashing lights. There we go. No, I can see it. North of the River Thames by Dr. Pablo and the Dub Syndicate. Um, the Dub Syndicate did a whole bunch of reggae, dub reggae, uh, veering on electro reggae, uh, largely in the 90s, early 2000s. And they sort of brought the sound of old style reggae up into the present, so to speak. Uh, much better produced, much better effects. It didn't, and reggae had not yet verged into like the, the jungle stuff or the rave stuff and all that, that came way much later. Most of it, in fact, all of it is instrumental mm-hmm. and it's the the best use of a uh, melodica that I've ever heard. Oh, wow. Melodica is that instrument, you know, you, you blow into it and mm-hmm. press the notes and most times I've heard it live by bands, it just sounds like a screeching rage, it just winds me mm-hmm. up completely. But Augustus Pablo does a really good job on it. Do you remember when you decided, well, you know, I've, I've got I've got the subhumans and I love hardcore music and and I also want to do ska reggae. Uh, there wasn't like a specific moment, but what mm. was going on in the background of me being a youth listening to the sort of quarter of an hour of punk rock tunes played at the weekly local disco um, was that before or after that, the mods would get their quarter of an hour of uh, ska tunes, Madness and the Selector and the Specials, that sort of thing. And I was there vehemently refusing to even admit that actually I found found it really quite catchy and I quite liked it on a sort of subconscious level. But I was punk rock. Anything apart from punk rock was shit because that's what being punk was like. Mm -hmm. Publicly ignorant and annoyed, angry and obstinate and all the things you are as a teenager with an unknown mission in your head to just be something that other people seem to be in order to make friends and link up with punk rock music. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so later on, when like a good cheese, I matured a little bit, it got to um, when the subhuman split up, Cold Shot got formed based on the bass lines of a chap called Paul who moved up to where we were from Cornwall down in the southwest England. And he brought with him a whole bunch of uh, interesting reggae-based bass lines. And 
we just it worked with our punk rock backgrounds and his reggae bass line. So a lot of it became scar based with a bit of dub, a bit of reggae, a bit of punk rock mixture. And that became culture shock. And the scar stuff, it was just great. You could move about, you could sing to it. It was more singing than shouting. There was more space for the vocals. This is from my, my angle, the singer angle. There was more space to sing in. You could be more understood when you were singing, wherever it was you were singing. You could sing... You could sing angry songs to happy music, and it felt refreshing. It wasn't it wasn't selling out because it wasn't angry music. It was like angry songs, happier music, and it was a really, I think, a really good mixture. And you could dance to it way it's more like than a, you can dance to punk rock if you it, like your dancing. It's like a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing Citizen Fish in Pittsburgh upstairs from Club Laga and, and this other, this adjacent venue in the same building called the Upstage. Um, and um, that's exactly the memory that maybe it was 1998. And uh, that's exactly the memory that I, that I have from it is that the lyrics were fierce and inspiring and educational in in some way but the feeling was joyful good yeah and i'm trying to impress that upon my teenager she's she's 13 and she's getting into uh bands like the cure and weezer and a system of a down um as well and um i've been playing the subhumans especially uh since I don't know. She was five or six, and um, and and now I'll put something on in the car, you know, that uh, she's heard a lot but never liked, and she'll turn to me and, and say, "I like this now." <laughs> and oh. like, <laughs> she's grown into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you notice as you go out on tour again and again, new generations of fans and even fans bringing their kids? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, old fans bring, suddenly come back to gigs again because their son or daughter is now old enough to come out to gigs with them and they do some time out. Yeah. Here's my son. He's when is he what he's got the leather jacket or whatever. He's got your mm -hmm. patch on here. This. And it's just like fantastic. You know, punk rock is now generational. Yeah. Uh, I think that's wonderful. Um, younger people have started to come back to the shows. I mean, a lot of the time in the last, I don't know how many years this is, 10 or 20 or perhaps, um, the majority of people at our shows, especially in this country, were, um, well, over 40. Mm -hmm. And there was a small percentage of like 25 and under. Whereas in America, it's almost exactly the other way around, which is pretty awesome, really. Um, more people live in america more people therefore go out to see the shows in america and the best thing is the majority of them are under 25 and they're full of all the youthful energy you could ever hope to not forget having in the first place um yeah i'm yeah it's easy to generalize some places in this country have got way more of the youth than other places mm. but then it could depend on what day of the week it is or what the weather's like yeah. um I'm I'm very glad to say that we have, so to speak, carried our audience with us through the decades, mm. which is why there's a bunch of so-called, let's say, older people come to see us because we we are all literally and logically older than we used to be. You know, five million, five minutes time, I'll be a bit older even more. You know, and people say, oh, what's it like getting old? What's it terrible getting old? It's like the alternative to getting old is it is dying. So right. I'll have it. You know. Yeah. You mentioned oh, it's great. Get get old and carry on what you were doing, what you were 20. Not many people can do that. Some people just don't want to do that. They think, well, you know, I was only 20 up there. No, I'm grown up and sensible. It's like nonsense. And people say, Oh, you're just a grumpy old man. I say, Yeah, I used to be a grumpy young man. So what, what's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the subhumans of breaking up, and I think you got back together in about 1997 or eight. Yeah, yeah. And I remember seeing your first concert back in Pittsburgh 
you know, and um, that's the scene that I'm from with Submachine and Ausrotten and and uh, um, I think Submachine opened that show. And um, you guys played from the cradle to the grave. And, um, hey. and it's great to get a little insight on the music that you were into before, you know, punk rock that might have influenced sort of a sort of a progressive punk rock song like that. And oh, yeah. Well, you asked me about my pre-punk rock influences. If you ask Bruce or Phil, they they could, or Chosky, they could yeah. read off the whole list of all the progressive rock bands you've ever heard of, and probably a few more, and Led Zepp, King Crimson, Yes, uh, Judas Priest, mm -hmm. uh, Black Sabbath. Um, old metal, old prog rock bands were their staple diet, The Who, yeah. uh, and so on. Uh, Pre-punk rock, they really liked it, and they didn't stop liking it when punk rock came along. Right. Whereas I I didn't stop liking David Bowie and the Black Sabbath earlier stuff. I just sort of more or less stopped listening to it. Yeah. I kept yeah. the records. I would drag them out once every five years and see if I missed mm -hmm. anything. It's good for memory, <laughs> reflection or whatever. But uh, yeah, that song uh, in particular, though, is is such an aberration in the history of punk music. You know, it's it's like a, <laughs> yes. it's like a stairway to heaven or a bohemian rhapsody you know in in, in yeah, the fact it's, that it's a sweet it's a very it's a very long song but i've written a very long song i said to yeah. bruce look i got this song it goes on for like four pages mm -hmm. what can we do with it and he ready said this is really good we've got to do some of it and the short version is he had a whole bunch of spare ideas in his head mm -hmm. and he linked them all together and then at some point he said okay we'll just repeat that bit over here then this or that and then drums on their own he just orchestrated it all together um over a series of practices mm. for about a month about four or five practices i suppose we sort of nailed it all together it was uh and we knew it was going to be weird for people to listen to but we didn't mind it was just mm. quite interesting to see if it worked and it was the only way to get a song with i don't know how many verses 40 verses i'm counting yeah yeah with 40 verses in only way to get that ever sung. Do you feel any kinship with Roger Waters in that song well, specifically? In that, you know, Dark Side of the Moon is also a yeah. song that, that goes through, you know, essentially someone's entire life. Does it? I've never thought of that record in that way. Easy. In my mind, it goes from the sound of the baby crying and then breathe, you know, and then, uh -huh. you know. Yeah youth and school and then and then war and then you know losing your mind and maybe suicide i'm not sure what happens um, at the end of that and and so i did once own that album i'm not sure where it went yeah and i did listen to it quite a lot pre-punk rock so to speak um the easy star all stars did mm. a dub version of the whole lot which is amazing yeah it's great and they've recently done another one of um Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. Uh, they call it the Ziggy Stardub. Hmm. I haven't heard it yet, but I'm keen to. <laughs> maybe it's completely off base, but I've always felt like From the Cradle to the Grave and Dark Side of the Moon are siblings almost. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought of it like that either. Um, yeah, because like, you know, punk bands didn't do long songs, really. Mm -hmm. That was just not heard of. But then... I did wonder the other day, maybe the only main reason we're called a punk band is because punk rockers come along to see us and like us. Mm -hmm. Or because of the fact that when asked what sort of band are we, we say we play punk rock. Or is it because that's because we like punk rock? But this is nonsense. You can delete all that. It's just yeah. thinking and wondering aloud. Leaving no, not very far. It's, it's, an, it's, it's an interesting subject because i just i just had a conversation with bill stevenson of the descendants and you know he was saying that growing up in la and being in that that scene that had you know the descendants but also like black flag and los lobos and x and the germs that punk actually meant that you were supposed to not sound like anybody else none of the bands sounded the same and so he was saying that it became disappointing in the 80s and 90s when punk was a certain sound because it was it was supposed to be about uniqueness. 
yes, you're very right. I mean, in the first, I won't call it a wave, I'm sick of that. <laughs> but when punk started, the within the first three, five years, you had bands like, I know, you had Wire and the Toy Dolls and Discharge and Crass and what well, I'll do for a start. There's four bands utterly different from each other, all yeah. under the punk label umbrella, whatever you want to call it. And it did morph into a lot of bands sounding like Discharge. Mm-hmm. A lot of bands sounding like the exploited. exploited. Yeah. Uh, a lot of bands trying to sound like Bad Religion. You know, you get certain bands, and a whole bunch of bands didn't even try to be original. They just wanted to sound like the bands they liked, mm-hmm. which, you know, flattery is the best form of uh, flattery. Or what's, what's that phrase? Imitation is the best form mm-hmm. of flattery. Maybe, but it's a bit dull if you collect all these Im- Im- imitators together and say, okay, where's what's the best one of this lot? Well, generally speaking, they all sound roughly the same. Some of them have got some extraordinary tracks, but more extraordinary would be a band that liked this music and then did something really different with it. Right. And it's a band to do things different that stand the test of time. Most people don't know this, but Bad Religion... You know, they made 8085, that that whole, all the songs on that. And their second album sounded like Yes. It was, it was a very spacey, weird, progressive rock album. And they learned, oh, nobody wants to. Nobody wants to hear us <laughs> do that. And then they came out with Supper, which was like, you know, this is us now. This is our career. And right. the only way that you can hear that spacey album is if you look on you know youtube or something something like that (laughs) (laughs) well you know they had an idea they followed it through maybe it didn't work but at least they they had a go at it yeah but it's nice that um you guys i think unlike anybody else in punk were able to you know bring all those weird influences whether it was the mothers of invention or it was emerson lake and palmer and combine that with this hardcore sounded and and be ambitious and, and do something like well i wanted to ask you whether you're still performing from the cradle to the grave and what kind of rehearsal goes into that um if we're going to play we haven't played it for quite a long time mm. uh, i think we might be getting lazy at old age and uh, there is a certain uh feeling amongst some people that if we do put it in the set then it just sort of kills the vibe of the set because it is not so fast and furious and short sharp shockish and a lot of people like the short sharp shock thing of of uh, being at shows um other people would really like to hear it played live and when we do play it live it generally goes down okay if we do play it we sort of plan ahead and we would do it for a sound check before we played it yeah and which is what we did last time we played it which i believe was in germany about four years ago mm-hmm. allowing for the pandemic getting in the way of doing anything well, I don't want to take up your entire day. So um, you gave me your uh, number one and number two. So what about three, four, and five for the zombie apocalypse yes. cabin? Let's have a look. Uh, number three, we have uh, Cracks, Fiend the 5000, their first album, um, which, personally speaking, was lyrically the most profound record I'd ever read up to that point. And uh, it made... It just opened this door to a reality where there was such a thing as the system. I didn't know what a system was. I didn't know what mm-hmm. capitalism was. I didn't know what corporate actually meant. And never considered the church to be anything other than dull and boring. But apparently they were part of like the whole process of keeping women in their place and mm-hmm. so on and so on. There were systems out there. And what they did was control everybody, including me and everybody I knew. It was like, what? It's like, oh. And suddenly all your suspicions that somehow you don't fit in for some reason, suddenly it wasn't my fault. I wasn't fitting in. Mm-hmm. It was like the way we, things were set up. That if you thought outside of the box, as people now say, uh, you were alienated, ostracized, or just punished. And suddenly he was a band, not only thinking outside the box, they destroyed the box yeah. completely, but all the other boxes were availability of 10-mile radius. And mm-hmm. say, like, rethink everything you've ever been taught and told, because... The system is here. It's in place to keep you in place. You will probably end up doing this, that, and the other before you die. When you die, 
they'll give they'll tax you when you die and just all this stuff and the music was just like right in your face so not a lot of melody or choruses or lead breaks It was, a, it was a stunner and um and it's a lot of words i had a lot of words and the best words yeah. on the other ones i remember is uh in the middle of um bound from the roxy um and the systems christ they're everywhere school army church a corporation deal um a fucked up reality based on fear a fucking conspiracy to stop you feeling real it's like wow and uh yeah that sunk in and from that point on not immediately that point on, but that helped a lot to expand the way I was writing lyrics and how mm-hmm. seriously I was taking stuff. And yeah, it was a, a major boost. It moved me from just being spikes and safety pins and silliness yeah, to spikes and safety pins and seriousness. Yeah. <laughs> and Crass, when you first hear that album and uh, do they owe us a living, it's... uh. It's not just a band; it's an army. Like they're fighting a war. Yeah, <laughs> of course they fucking do. Yeah. So having done that and that and that, well, well that's not much left. I had a couple of CDs in. There's only a Victrola there, Dick. There's no, there's not there's not a CD player. Hey, huh? <laughs> there's not a CD player in the cabin. There's only there's only a Victrola. So you got to be prepared. I think these CDs are available on vinyl. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on. Here, here we go. Yes. Okay, so we have um, Le Plebe, Brazo on Brazo. Campesino no lo pueden creer, que te tienen en el lodo para poder comer. Campesino no lo pueden creer, que te tienen en el lodo para poder comer. And I think that's their second album. And they were a ska punk band but not in the way you might think of a scarf punk band. I mean, they got the brass, the trombone and the trumpets, and two guitarists, uh, two singers, drummer. That'll cover it. They sing in Spanish and English. Uh, Where are they from? They were ba- based roughly around Oakland, San Francisco area. Okay. Um they stopped playing. They stopped playing maybe about four or five years ago. It was a real shame. Um, they did a few gigs with Subhumans somewhere in the 2000s. And the 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 energy they've got, the anger, is like, it's like socio-political lyrics. Uh, they're angry about the way people are treated. But the music is... It's like Scar, but faster. It's like punk rock, mm. but more tuneful. So it's a, it's a really good combination of Scar and Punk put together. Yeah. And they do a version of Bella Chow, which is such a good version of that song. Like Chumba Wumba did it once. Mm-hmm. Bella Chow, Bella Chow, Bella Chow, 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 In with the trombone and trumpet. You haven't heard nothing like it. So highly recommended. Brazo on Brazo, as in E-N on Brazo. Le plebe. We do and, a we do a, a mile high stash playlist on Spotify where I add uh, at least one song from each choice. So I'll have to turn people on to that band. Cool. Uh, number five or number one, you might put it, is uh, another oddly enough greatest hits by the Cardiacs. Cardiacs have got, I don't know how many albums, five or eight albums out um, over the years, uh, mostly like 80s and 90s and 2000s. Their singer, unfortunately, had a stroke and unfortunately died 
quite oh. recently. Um, where do you start describing a cardiac to anybody who's never heard them? I don't know. But they their songs, uh, there's a lot of variety between the songs and also within certain songs. There's just breaks and they they are so tuneful and so melodic and energetic and surprising. They stop and start at angles you wouldn't expect to be coming up. So their music is full of surprises. Um, the singer, who's called Tim, has a voice that is higher than most singers, and he can hit high notes. And see, he's a very good singer. He actually sings. The lyrics are just kind of abstract, all over the place, kind of emotional. They don't seem to lead anywhere. You're not quite sure what he's singing about or if it's true or just making it up. But I have to conclude in the end, it doesn't matter. Just the nature of the singing, the, the amount of harmonics, it, it doubles up all his vocals. And there's, there's even a, a kid singing on one of the songs. And the musicality of it all mm. it is, I'm not religious now, I am spiritual. And this, some of these songs on this Cardiac's Greatest Hits lift, seriously lift my spirit mm. up into the heavens. <laughs> Sounds weird saying that, but oh, I'm not a hippie. But it it gets me right there. Just the combination of notes and the the nature of the very recording, the quality, mm -hmm. and you just hear everything clear as a bell. I got loads of keyboards going on, and I got to mention the last line of one of the songs, which is called "Buds and Spawn." I think that's that one. Yeah, the last line is, "What's the point in giving us hands?" I thought, what. What's the point in giving us hands? What a line. What a concept. What? What? And that, then the song ends on that. It's like, what? So that gets one of the weirdest, most surreal, possibly the best lyrics, lyrical lines I've ever read. Hmm. And it's just it's just weird, isn't it, really? What's the point in giving us hands? No one ever asks the question, who's giving the hands? And it's like, what if you didn't have any? What would be, right. what would you miss about them most? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, that's fantastic. This is not a band that I've heard of, and I'm, I'm super excited to check it out. That's yeah, they had they, in the same way as New Model Army have got mm -hmm. their fan base, which is enormous. They got fans that don't go watch any other bands whatsoever. Right. The Levelers have got much the same thing going on. Cardiacs are a bit like that. They have a massive fan base. Uh, when Tim went into hospital after the stroke, and the news got out their T-shirt sales increased by like 500% because people just wanted to give money to the band yeah. to keep the treatment going. Um, wow. The love that the people got for this band is intense. I saw them twice ages ago, back in the late 80s, I think it was, and I was too fucking drunk to remember how good it was. Right. I didn't know what I was looking at. I didn't realise what I was seeing. And then years later, when I discovered them properly, it was like, I've seen this band, I can't remember how good they were. You know how annoying that is? Yeah, right. it is. <laughs> anyway, highly recommended for people who want just to have their brains taken to a, a, a lovely higher level of joy. Yeah. Not all their songs are that good, but some really are. Right. Know, pop stuff. I just want to leave you with one last question. I know I've already asked you this. It was like under a bridge in, in Glasgow, but... Yes. <laughs> um, I, I think... Um, um, each time we chat, if we ever chat again, I want to ask you this question. What's your reason for existence? Do you believe in anything? <laughs> and does your lifestyle contradict the words you write for the songs you sing? And also kind of, how do you live up to that um, in a world where just like having shoes or a phone means you're, you know, supporting child labor? Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Everything, everything we do is wrong from somebody's angle. Especially mm -hmm. these days where the truth is really hard to pin down. Yeah. And even even the facts can be contradicted just by making stuff up and get equal airtime. You know, I'm not gonna say there's no truth anymore, but it's very hard to find other layers and layers and layers of opinion. Anyway, that aside, how do we, uh, well, we're we can all be self-contradictory and hypocritical now and again as anarchy, right? You know, if, if you put, give yourself such rules that you don't let yourself do anything on the basis yeah. that you are going to criticize yourself for doing it. Yeah. And that's on the basis of being criticized by other people for doing something that 
a whole bunch of other people outside of these parameters you set up couldn't give a fuck about mm-hmm. that you've got to start to loosen up around the edges and if you do something that you know is kind of wrong you can reason out to yourself why it's wrong who's it affecting who does it affect humans or animals your neighbors yourself your partner it's good to it's good to know yourself to the point where like i'm a vegetarian mm-hmm. i've tried being vegan the one thing that made me go vegan for a few months or longer was um going out with a vegan mm-hmm. the best way to become a vegan is to go out with one because their diet is not your diet and your theirs is much easier to cook and better morally to fit in with so if uh, vegans want to spread their get the, these lazy vegetarians off their asses they should just go out and give them a kiss and see what happens yeah <laughs> um things like i mean i feel good being a vegetarian i feel slightly guilty for not being vegan but that's where my brain is you know yeah and i'm not going to go on about it because it's not that important everybody should set up where they feel comfortable and the less damage they do to other humans or animals the better it is and i could be doing better and because I go on about animal rights, am I hypocritical mm. because I'm not a vegan, even though I am a vegetarian? Yes, I'm being a bit hypocritical. But if you shut yourself down from being a little bit hypocritical, you don't say anything at all, that's a lot worse than saying something that slightly jars with how you actually live. Like I don't like I don't like television, but I watch it actually I don't watch it, I watch it sometimes. I hate I hate computers and digitalization of the whole of society. But here we are talking over Zoom on the internet. Yeah. It's got its uses, but it's like television. It's got its uses. You can give out good information, teach people. One way of teaching people is through information, through these media products. But the, the downside of all these things is that a lot of people out there are just going to exploit the means by which we communicate in order to make themselves a whole bunch of money or make themselves famous or become politicians and just lie their way to the top and bluff people into becoming shadows of their former selves. Yeah. Because the social social media has, has now replaced going out on a Friday night to meet your friends down the local pub, which used to be a, a ritual, and it was never dull. You might have a hangover the next day, but you saw your mates, you saw what they were like, and you had fun during after. If you didn't have fun, it wouldn't matter. You'd repeat the process the weekend after. And these these were events. They you know just going out was an event. You get ready for it. You get into it. You go there. You eat before you go. You you end up. You don't know where you're going to end up. End up at Mm-hmm. online you can talk to the whole world all day all week and you'll never get even an ounce of the same excitement as you could get by going out with your friends face to face to anywhere you don't even have to drink just go and meet people and talking to them is just a, it's just human nature yeah and the digital world is not natural okay we invented it and we're humans and we're natural but the stuff we invent it's not I think the bad outweighs the good. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that we could talk. You know, there are ways that technology. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is very useful. Yeah, cars are useful and they're destroying yeah. the planet. Everything's got two sides to it. We just got to try and use the good side. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking with me and, and thank you for um, the lyrics that have changed my life too. I mean, the number one that I always go back to, even as a parent, I think of be a source of information, inspire, debate, protest, and go. That that's nice. amazing. And um, um, well, well, but I also wanted to say I hope that people check out your art. Um, oh, you're, yeah, you're a fantastic painter. Thank you. It's all on. Well, some of it's on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, more of it's on uh, Etsy.com under the name Mad as a Brush. Okay. Thank you so much, Dick. And I, Thank you, Adam. Good to see you again. To, hope to say hi in, in, in Denver this fall. Yeah. Good man. Thank you. Thanks, man. Good one. Cheers. I'll give you another hour then I gotta run. I gotta fly away. Leave you to fall. That was Dick Lucas of the Subhumans, uh, Citizen Fish, and Culture Shock. Um, I really hope that Citizen Fish hits America again someday as well. Um, they play, um, there's a sticker that I always had on my guitar, Global Punk Ska. Um, and uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
I could easily do an hour with Dick just about Citizen Fish. And and um, if you haven't heard those those amazing 90s albums like Thirst and Free Souls in a Trapped Environment and Wider Than a Postcard and Millennium Madness, um, you're missing out on some of the most vital music of the 90s in my very biased opinion. Um, anyway, the Subhumans will be playing the Oriental Theater in Denver on Monday, November 6th. Please change the name of the Oriental Theater someday, by the way. Um, and I will be playing the drums with Rolling Harvest this Friday night, October 13th at the Gold Hill Inn in my uh, very opinionated uh mind the best music venue in Colorado um, other than Red Rocks is the Gold Hill Inn it's just fantastic and, and the Finn family is fantastic um hope to see you there Friday um and I will see you right back here next Monday as usual for another edition of Mile High Stash please review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I don't think you can review, but you can rate on Spotify. Just all that stuff really goes a long way, um, along with any amount of a, a donation you can make um, at milehighstash.com or even on Venmo. Um, that would be at Adam Ice9. Um, if you've read Kurt Vonnegut, you probably get the reference. Anyway, see you soon. Go home back to Montreal.